0: sin sin is terrible i mean it's awful amen sin is terrible your sin is terrible my sin is terrible you have sinned terribly sin has corrupted our world we've broken god's law we've missed god's mark we've chosen darkness over light we've enjoyed the temporary pleasures of sin over the eternal joys of obedience to christ We've broken His commandments. We've wagged our fingers in the face of God as if we knew better than the Creator Himself. We've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen. We've broken laws. We're lawbreakers. We're wretched. We deserve death and condemnation. The Scripture teaches that all have sinned and that the wages of sin is death, darkness. The Bible talks about sin. We at the Vine talk about the Bible, therefore we talk about sin. Sin is real. It is dangerous. It is death. People would rather not talk about sin. People would rather not talk about death. It doesn't make us feel warm and cozy inside. Nobody here is smiling anymore this morning. It brings this the temperature down in the room, makes you feel cold and 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 just not good. Makes you feel terrible sin's terrible remember and we don't want people to think we're mean so often we don't talk about sin and we don't talk to each other about our own sin and instead of talking about it people try to rationalize it and and even worse they deny it i mean if if sin's not really that bad then then we really don't need a savior I read one theologian talk about sin and the atonement of Christ this way. I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I think Jesus came to show, show us something about life. I don't think we need people hanging on crosses and blood dripping and all that weird stuff. You see, when you downplay sin, you also downplay salvation through Jesus Christ. When you don't talk about how wretched sin is, you don't know how glorious Jesus is. And so this morning, we're going to be in 1 John, and we're going to talk about sin. And we're going to try to understand the depths of our sin and understand the depths of the Savior who died for our sin. So when we talk about sin and how terrible it is and how wretched we are, and when we understand how helpless we are, we fall so far down that there's only one thing to do, and that's to look up. And folks, when we look up, we find Jesus. We find our advocate, the propitiation for sin. We see grace and forgiveness, and, and, and they are more than just church words. They bring life and joy and peace. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, have it more abundantly. And so this morning, I hope by the end of this message that you will take a good look at your own life and your own sin and be honest about it and understand that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So I want us to read John chapter 1 verses 5 through 10, and we're going to answer the questions, what are we to do about our sin? Look at 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we have this sin problem, and I believe John addresses uh, this sin problem in 1 John. And, and we're going to answer the question, what are we to do about our sin The first thing that we try to do is we try to cover our sins. We try to cover our sins. We look at it in verse 1 or verse 5. Rather, We see that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. You see, when you and I were were saved, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2 that we were called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're called children of light in somewhere like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And John here uses this idea of light and darkness in this section to elaborate his point about sin and lying that we'll look at in just a moment. You see, there's something about light. Light exposes things. If you want to observe something very closely, you want to really see it for what it's worth, what it is, you need the proper light. Uh, we're working hard uh, here at the Vine to get the best lighting in this room. It's been quite a struggle, to be honest with you. Okay, we're working on that. Um, but I want you to think of darkness for a minute. Julie and I will sometimes have this conversation at home because I like it kind of dark. So she's like, man, you, you really like it dark. She's like, you know, that's not good. That's not a godly thing to like darkness. I'm like, wait a second, baby. And I always counter that with, hey, I like light, just the right amount of light. You know, I need a little light because a little bit of light exposes the darkness, you know. Try and uh, like just a lamp or two, man, it's all we really need. Um, when we say things are dark are they really at night you go out in in louisiana most nights you can see the stars they shine you have some light the moonlight on a full moon here it's almost like walking in the daylight sometimes it's beautiful it's it's light but have you ever been in complete darkness you ever been somewhere where it was so dark you got scared like like I'm not scared of the dark, but the dark dark, <laughs> like where you can't see anything in front of you, it's pretty frightening. So it's, it's weird feeling to be in complete darkness. John here says about Jesus, listen, that in Christ there is no darkness at all. A more literal translation of that would be this, in him there is no darkness, none. That word at all at the end there could be translated none or nothing. So in respect in, in this respect, there is not even a little darkness in Jesus. Jesus dispels darkness. He's perfect light. He's complete light. He, there's, there's no squinting of eyes to try to read because you don't have enough light. There's more of a squinting because there's so much light. Because he's so bright. His light shines bright. And light, the light of Jesus, it does something. It produces life and growth and beauty. But darkness, the darkness of sin, destroys. It kills. In verse 6, he speaks of the darkness, and, and, and the fir- this is the first of three if-we-say statements in this passage. This is where we begin to try to cover our sin. We begin to try to get into darkness and out of the light. John uses, in verse 6, a very inclusive word. He says, we, and that we, we say, if we say, it's to indicate anyone, anywhere, at any time, including John himself, that takes this position if we say, in this in this first if we say statement we see how we try to cover our own sins look at it verse six if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth so how do we try to cover our sins by telling lies and and there's a progression of lies I want you to see this first one we lie to others we we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We we want our Christian friends to think that we're spiritual or, or people at work or wherever. So we we lie about our lives to try to make a, a favorable impression on others. We want them to think that we're we're walking in the life in the light, though we may be walking in darkness. And and, and there's remember there's this progression. Once we start to lie to others, we will soon start to lie to ourselves. Do you see it in verse eight? The second if-we-say statement, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The problem is, is now not deceiving others, but deceiving ourselves. Now listen, I want, you to, I want you to hear me this morning, Christian. It is possible for a believer to live in sin and yet convince themselves that everything is fine in their relationship with the Lord. We begin to deceive ourselves. We begin to justify our sins. We begin to talk about it like it's not that big a deal. We forget the first part of this sermon because sin is terrible. Now, this is, this is nothing new under the sun for, for those who are in Christ, for those who are, who are godly people. The classic Old Testament is that of David. If you follow David's life, the king, we've been talking about him for some time now. Can't wait till we get to 2 Samuel, maybe, maybe next year where we'll talk more about David. But David, he, he lusts after Bathsheba. He commits adultery with her. She's pregnant. He calls for her husband to have him get drunk. That doesn't work, so he sends her husband out to the front lines where he's, he's, he's killed. So David's now a, a lust, lustful adultery, adulterator, murderer. He sends Uriah out to be killed, and David goes back to his royal duties. Some believe he probably was back to his royal duties for some time. We don't know exactly how long a period that was. But it's as if he had done nothing wrong. He had, he had kind of deceived himself. And the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him a a hypothetical story about a poor man and a rich man. And this poor man, they had a lamb at their house. And this lamb was the family pet. And everybody loved the lamb. And they they made noises to the lamb. And they they petted the lamb. And they loved the lamb. And it was their one lamb. And then the rich man who had flocks galore, I mean, had more than he knew what to do with, he comes along. And one of his friends comes in town. And he takes the poor man's lamb. And he kills the poor man's lamb. Even though he has a lot of of sheep and, and everything he needed, he takes the poor man's lamb. And even right now, now I'm getting furious at him. Aren't you? will not that just aggravate you for somebody to be so treacherous, to take something from somebody who doesn't have much and, and, and use it for their own good? Well, that's how David felt. David was furious, and he said, that man should surely die. And Nathan says to David something that you don't ever want told to you, not in this aspect at least. Sometimes we like to be, hear this, but, but not in this. Nathan tells David, you are the man, and this is a time you don't want to be The man and david begins to see his his sin and and nathan has has shined the light of truth on david's sin and david comes to his senses and and um and and he sees that there are severe consequences to what he's done you see once we begin to lie to others we eventually deceive ourselves but the spiritual decline becomes even worse the next step is lying to god or about god look at verse 10 progression we lie to others we lie to ourselves look at verse 10 if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar his word is not in us so we've made ourselves liars and now we try to make God a liar we contradict his word which says all have sinned and we maintain that we're an exception to that rule we act as if our sin's not that big a deal we apply God's word to others but not to ourselves we sit through church services like this, like this one, and the Word of God doesn't move us. And we become cold and hard-hearted. We've just begun to walk in darkness. Christians can reach this level. John is writing to believers here. And believers who reach this low are usually highly critical of others, and they strongly resist applying the Word to their own lives. Sin has a way of, of absolutely devastating our lives. It causes us to lie about our actions. It causes us to lie about our own condition. It causes us to lie about God himself. And this section deals with, with sin, particularly, though, the sin of lying, sin of deception to try to cover up all the other sin in our life. Lying is so dangerous, isn't it? It's so dangerous because it's hard to keep up with, isn't it? Abraham Lincoln once said that if a man is going to be a liar, he better have a good memory. The progression here is is so so simple, so easy to follow. It happens so quickly or maybe so subtly that we don't even notice it. It's this downward spiral of lies. And there's only one way to counter lies. There's only one way to counter the insincerity in our own life, and that's with truth. That's with the truth of God, with honesty. Honesty. So if this progression is that one stops doing the truth, then the truth is, we see that in verse 6, they stop doing the truth. In verse 8, they no longer are in the truth. And in verse 10, we see that the truth is turned into lies. Then there's only one remedy, and that's honesty. We must be honest with ourselves, honest with others, and honest with God. And honestly, the truth is, we cannot cover our sin. You can't hide your sin. Only Jesus can cover our sin, which brings us to the next answer that we'll look at about our sin. And it's a better answer than trying to cover it ourselves. It's that we confess our sins. We can try to cover our sins or we can confess our sins. If we look at verses 7 and verse 9, we see this picture of someone walking in the light. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he, and that's God the Father, is in the light, we have fellowship, with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Last week we talked about the fellowship that we have with God and with others, and how those two things go; those two fellowships go hand in hand. When we're fellowshipping with God, we're fellowshiping with one another, and we see this again. Walking with God in light means that we have fellowship with others, and that Jesus' blood uh, has cleansed us from all of our sin. Now the question is, how do we maintain this status of fellowship? and cleansing. Well, look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what do we do? We confess our sins. But what does it mean to confess our sins? Confession is much more than this admission to guilt. Confession is, it actually literally means to say the same thing about. So when we confess our sins to God, we're saying the same things about our sin that God says about our sin. So we're not looking at sin as some light thing. We're looking at sin as exactly what God calls it. Sin led God to send his one and only son to die on the cross for those who would trust in him. So we begin to agree with God what sin is and what our sin is we confess there was a young man who approached his pastor admitting that he had sin in his life and the pastor told him that he needed to confess his sin so the young man began to pray oh father if we have done anything wrong and the pastor stopped him he said whoa 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 man don't don't drag me into this it's not if or we it's not if i've done anything wrong it's not it's not we it's, this is not some corporate prayer that we pray for everyone else We've got to do business with God here. This is calling our sin what it is. Confession is not a, a lovely prayer or making pious excuses for what we've done or trying to impress others or trying to impress God. We, we, we do that, don't we? If we'd be honest, we, we apologize like that a lot of times. We say, hey, man, if I've done anything to hurt you, that, that, blah, 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 right? It's so, uh, when someone apologizes and then uses the word but afterwards, I apologize, but that's really not an apology, right? That's just an excuse. And here we see confession is calling it that. We should take that into our own, own lives, not just with with God, but with each other. Let's call it what it is. Man, if you've offended somebody in this fellowship, go to them. Tell them, man, this is what I did. It may surprise them. They may not even know it. But listen, you'll have a clean conscience. Amen? You confess and say, man, this is what's happened. this That's what confession is. True confession is naming sin, calling it by name what God calls it. Envy, hatred, lust, deceit, or whatever it may be, calling it what God calls it. Confession, confession is the opposite of, of trying to cover our sin. It's actually putting our sin out in the open. It's dangerous, right? Because we, we really care what people think about us. It's just who we are. So sin, confession is, is bringing those sins out into the light, letting God's light shine on the truth of his word, shine on it. It's being honest instead of lying we just read about. Honest with ourselves and with God about our sin and with others if if they're involved. So we need to judge sin and face it squarely for what it is. Verse 9, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. But this promise is not like some kind of magic rabbit's foot that makes it easy for us to disobey God. It's not this, this easy kind of trick that we use. I can do kind of whatever I want as long as I ask God for forgiveness. That's the wrong thinking of sin because we're presuming on God's grace and his forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't some cheap sideshow that God performs. God is faithful to his promise and God is just because Jesus died for your sins and paid the penalty for you. So God is just. He will forgive. But that should not make it easier for us to continue in sin. It should do the opposite. It should make it harder for us to sin because we know that we're going to sin against a faithful and loving God who will forgive us. It's not how we treat one another. It's not how we should treat God. So we come and we confess. We confess with a heart towards repentance. We confess sincerely. We call sin what it is. We turn from it. We don't add to the confession. We confess. We don't, we don't rub beads together when we confess. We don't, we don't go do a lot of things that somebody's told us to do that will help us with our confession. We confess. We come, we call sin what it is, we tell God what it is, and we turn from it. That's confession. And God does the work. What work? The work of forgiveness. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Listen, folks. It doesn't matter what you've done in this life. If you come to Christ for forgiveness, He is faithful, He is just, and He forgives you. Recently, had a man ask me. He said, "You know, doesn't it seem unjust for for somebody to live a life of rebellion and and ungodliness, and only at the last minute before they die to confess Christ and 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 trust Him and?" He said, you, you mean to tell me that that guy might be in front of me in the line in heaven? I said, man, you missed it. <laughs> you missed it. That should make you happy. That should make you happy. Because God's grace is for all who come confessing. He is just to forgive. It's, it's not about what we've done. It's about what he's done. and He paid the price on the cross for sin. So we come, we confess, and God does the work of forgiveness. Your sins Forgiven in Christ, in a very, very judicial sense, you have a right standing before God. You are justified. You are forgiven, and in a very personal sense, you're cleansed. You're cleansed from your sin. You see it in verse nine: forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Earlier, we talked about how there was there was no righteousness in Him. There's no righteousness. I mean, there's no darkness at all. There's no darkness. None. It's the opposite here. There's uh, you are cleansed from. All unrighteousness, everything, every drop of unrighteousness you are cleansed from. In verse 7, we see that the blood of Jesus cleanses us. His shed blood, this picture that we see before us today, His shed blood is what cleanses us from sin. This picture of cleansing, it's an, it's an inward cleansing. You know, David prayed in Psalm 51 after he had his encounter with Bathsheba and Nathan, and he realized his sin, he, he prays this prayer, God, create in me a clean heart, O oh God cleanse me cleanse me make me clean when our confession is sincere God does a cleansing work in our hearts by his spirit through his word what a beautiful picture of being clean before God I asked you a question this morning have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power are you washed in the blood of the lamb What is the right response to our sin? It's confession and repentance, agreeing with God about what our sin is and then moving forward from that. I say moving forward from that. How, how does that look? That's kind of our next point. We move on from our sin or we conquer our sin. So we can try to cover our sin, we can confess our sin, and we can conquer our sin. I want you to look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read that to you this morning with you it says my children i am writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments whoever says i know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way with which in which he walked. Folks, we can conquer our sins. I want you to, to follow along with me for a minute. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we see the first of seven times that John will address this audience as little children. This is a, a term of endearment, of, of fatherly concern. He saw the people that he's writing to as his spiritual children. They saw John as their spiritual father. They had a beautiful relationship, a beautiful fellowship in Christ. And he tells them that he's writing these things to them that they would not sin. I mean, at the end of the day, isn't that what we want for our children? At the end of the day, isn't that what we want for one another, that we would not sin? And so John's writing this. I'm writing these things to you that you would, would not sin. Now, John is not to be misunderstood here. He is not saying that they will become sinless, but He is certainly saying that they should sin less. Amen? We will still have remaining sin in our life until we are with Jesus in heaven. We are still in the process of being sanctified and made holy by God Himself. We are not Jesus. We are not completely like Jesus. But what I want you to do is hold your place here and turn over one page to John chapter 3, verse 2. Because while we are not yet like Jesus, one day we will be. Look at, look at chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Listen. There's a danger in the book of First John to try to think that you could reach some kind of sinless perfection. You will reach sinless perfection, but not here, not in this life, in the life when Christ in heaven. You know there was a there was a kid who, one of the students at a church I was at, he uh, he talked about sinless perfection a lot. He said, "Man, you gotta you gotta believe that you could reach sinless perfection, sinless perfection, sinless perfection." And finally, I asked him, "I'm like, man." Like, I just, I mean, it just doesn't line up with the scriptures, but, but, you know, you've been part of this church that teaches this. Have you ever known somebody who reached sinless perfection? And he said, yeah, I sure did. I said, well, look, man, it just so happens I just filled up my gas tank. I don't know how far this guy is away, but I would love to meet him. I've never seen one, you know, one of these sinless perfection guys. Like, that would be great. And he says, well, we, we can't, we can't do that. I'm like, why not? He said, well, he fell. He fell. Did he hurt himself? No, he he, he sinned. What are you talking about, man? Of course he sinned. He's a sinner. Amen? We're all sinners, and until we we cross from this life to the next, we'll still have remaining sin. Now listen, we won't be sinless, but we should sin less. Amen? Amen? Our life should be a progression of where sin is being shed from us, and when it happens, we confess it and we move on. We conquer it, and we don't go back to those sins. We move forward. And there may be another sin that pops up that comes along the way. And we, you know what we do when that happens? We confess it, and we conquer it, and we move on. And then what happens? Maybe one of those old familiar sins pops back up. You know what we do? We confess it, and we repent, and we move on. I want to be very clear this morning. You're not going to get to a place where there's never any sin in your life, but you can resist sin. You can find yourself at a place where you sin less and less and less. And I want to encourage you to trust Christ in that. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Because the next thing he says is, you know, I, I, I'm writing this so that you don't sin, but if anyone does sin. And, and that's what I want to I capture for us this morning. I don't want you to have an excuse to sin. Paul c- cleared that up in Romans. Should we sin all the more that grace may abound? No. No, we should not continue in sin and presume upon the grace of Christ. That's not evidence of the Spirit at work in your life. Evidence of the Spirit at work in your life is when you sin, you come quickly and you confess and you move on and you conquer sin by the power of Christ, which we'll get to in a minute. So he writes to them. He says, I write these things so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, look at that. Verse one, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous man. What a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. In the book of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, the word advocate is used for Jesus. This is the Greek word parakletos. Now, that might not mean a whole lot to you, but in seminary, that word got us excited. Amen? Because it, it was the word that was almost exclusively used for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete or the parakletos. He was the one who comes alongside of you and helps you. It's used five times in the New Testament, always refers to the Holy Spirit except for right here. And John uses it as a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he's saying. The word parakletos, it means helper, one who is called alongside of us in our time of need. Jesus said in, in John 14, I am sending you a what? A helper. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. And here John says Jesus is also our helper. Isn't the gospel amazing? What John is saying here is that we have a helper when we sin. I hope you don't sin, but when you do, you got an advocate. You've got a helper. He is the cleanser of sin, the forgiver of sin, and the helper when we do sin. Listen, do you understand that in this life, Jesus is accessible all the time? Now, you and I in our lifetime will put our hands to work in so many different vocations. We won't necessarily do it for a living, but, man, we're going to hang a light somewhere. We're going we're to do some plumbing work at our house at some point. We're going to pour some concrete. And you know what? It would be great if in those moments we had an electrician. Like when we're, when we're wiring up the light, if we had an electrician just telling us what to do, that would make it so much easier. It's not always the case. Sometimes we shock ourselves in the wrong way. And then, you know, or, or, or if you're plumbing, wouldn't it be great to just have a professional plumber right there? Someone to just just kind of say, hey, man, put the glue on first. Well, you got to clean it first. Use the cleaner then the glue. And then you guys know what I'm talking about. Or wouldn't it be great if, if you were in, in any vocation in life, had somebody that was a very good professional in that category? Folks. In your vocation of life, the fact that you are living this life, you have Jesus Christ the righteous who who has lived it, who has perfected it, who is the epitome of professional at living life. And you know where he is? He's right there. He's a prayer away. It's a good prayer for you to say, Jesus, help me. Because he is ready and willing You, he is your advocate, your help, your ever-present help in a time of need. So let's cry out to him and ask for his help. He's our advocate, and the reason that he can be our advocate is because of what John says next. Look at verse two. Jesus is also the propitiation for sin. He's the propitiation for sin. The word propitiation—that's a—that's a a big word. It, It carries with it the idea of satisfaction. This is Jesus Christ by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, satisfied God's holiness and turned away the righteous wrath of God from sinners. That should excite you. The wrath that should have been poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus Christ. The judgment that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus Christ. And all of this was done to accomplish his purpose, his will, god's will if we read somewhere like second corinthians 5 we'll see that our sin that, that we'll see that through the propitiation of our sins in christ the bible says god was reconciling the world to himself it's because god satisfied the wrath of god it's because jesus satisfied the wrath of god that you have a right standing before him that the wrath of god is not poured out on you and me That should have got a big amen. I know I I kind of was sloppy with the way I said it, but I'll say it again. Because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, you and I don't have to have the wrath of God poured out on us. Man, isn't the gospel amazing? John is laying it out for his readers here. He doesn't want them to sin, but he wants them to know that when they do sin, they have an advocate. Not only an advocate, but qualified advocate, someone who was perfect, someone who satisfied the complete wrath of God. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. All of this was done to accomplish this purpose. Knowing that Christ is our advocate and our helper and that he's the propitiation for our sins. But listen, he is also our example. Look at verse 6 with me. In verse 6 he says, Whoever says he abides in him ought also to walk in the same way in which he walked. We are to walk as Christ walked. How did Christ walk? In the light. This goes back to verse 7 of chapter 1. He walked in the light. He was completely obedient. In verses 3 through 6, we see the contrast between those who walk in darkness and those who walk in the light. This is the contrast between the liars in chapter 1 and the ones who claim to know him in chapter 2. Our obedience to God's commands are the true evidence of our faith. Our obedience to God's commands are the true evidence of our faith. One preacher said it this way study the Bible to know God. Obey the Bible to really know God. It's evidence that we have Christ in us. This is the moral test that I alluded to last week. We'll see throughout John that there are several tests. There's a theological test. We're talking about who Jesus is, and he covered that in the first chapter and some of what we talked about just now. And there's this further, there's also this. Um, idea of an ethical test, which we'll look at later, but here is the moral test. The moral test. Do you remember John's purpose in writing this short book? So that the readers would know that they have eternal life. It's about eternal security. It's about assurance of salvation, knowing that you're saved. How can one know that they have salvation? How can one know that they're saved or not? Well, if you want to know day by day, if you know him, that you are truly saved, it is simple. Look to his perfect advocacy look to his atoning work on your behalf and keep his commandments keep his commandments you will know that you know him and the only time when this is in question in your life is when there's sin present because remember how terrible and dark and dirty sin is sin even hurts this point in our lives this this knowing christ it makes us doubt sometimes. So sin brings this doubt and disillusionment. But, but you just heard John say that if we sin, we have an advocate and that we are to confess our sins. So we know that a sin doesn't mean that we aren't saved. We know that an act of disobedience or a breaking of a command doesn't mean that we're not saved. It means that we aren't perfect. And that there, and, and that's, that's only temporary because we know we will be perfect one day in Christ. So how do we know? Well, folks, this morning, I want you to know there is a sign. There is a sign that you can can look at of whether or not you're in him and you're saved. You want a sign from God? This is a good time to ask for one. God, give me a sign. Listen, your sign is you. You're the sign. You're the sign. You keeping his commandments. That's the sign. That's evidence that you are someone who trusts Christ. Keeps them perfectly? No, but keeps them. Keeps them consistently. Caught off guard when you don't keep them. Listen, keeping the commands of God is not a condition of knowing God, but it is a clear sign and indication that we know God. It's not a condition. You don't have to do this, 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 and this to be saved, but because you are saved, your life will be doing this, 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 and this keeping up with Christ and his commandments. In verse 5, we see whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. This verse is in contrast kind of to verse 4 and and really advances John's argument here. It also ties together this vital relationship, listen, between knowing God, loving God, and obeying God. For God so loved, you understand the love of God you can't help but reciprocate the love of God. When he makes his love known to you, the sincere love that he has for you, it's reciprocated. And that love is perfected in us in obedience. He's saying, when you obey me, that's the evidence that you truly love me. Doesn't mean when you mess up, you don't love God anymore. It means that you walked away and that you confess and repent. You come back and you begin to walk in the ways of God. We keep His commandments. It ties together this idea of love. Listen, verse 6 also brings out how we mature in Christ and conquer our sin. It uses the word abide. We abide in Him. Here John is speaking of our remaining or abiding in Jesus. Jesus said a lot about this in John chapter 15. And John, the writer here, he will use this word 23 times in this short epistle. The word abide. And it's kind of like obeying Jesus and loving Jesus. Abiding in Christ is the natural outgrowth of knowing Jesus, of having a vibrant relationship with Jesus. The idea is one of continuing in Jesus. Now listen, I'm I'm not God, so I can't tell you one way or the other if you're saved. But I can tell you that if you're remaining in Christ, there's good evidence there. If you're abiding in Christ, the fact that you're here this morning... I think that's good evidence. It doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean you saved. I'm not don't I don't hear what I'm not saying. Some of you may have stumbled in here and you don't know anything about Christ. This is your first time hearing about Christ. Praise God! I want to talk to you after service because man, there's so much richness in knowing Christ. But I'm just saying, if you're here and you've been a, a follower of Jesus for a long time, you've confessed Christ, and you're here, you hadn't walked away from this thing. That's big. Show some abiding. You say, I'm not perfect, Brother Matt, you don't know me. I don't I don't have to know you. I know me. I ain't perfect. Ask Julie afterwards. We all sin and fall short. But there's an abiding. I'm back. I'm back this week. You're back. We're here. We're abiding in Christ. Be confident in who Christ what Christ has done. Listen <laughs> I love this. You don't John, John says we have both a statement to prove and a savior to imitate. If you look at, at verse 6, the word ought conveys a moral obligation to walk, for our walk to match our talk. I served with a pastor for a long time who always said this. Some of you will know him. He said, our talk talks and our walk talks, but our walk talks louder than our talk talks. I'll never forget that because it was so good. I, I, our, our talk talks and our walk talks, but our walk talks louder than our talk talks. Man, to truly abide in Christ means that I will live, I will walk. Like Christ. The predominant theme of my life is that Christ is my life. He is who I am. He is what I'm becoming. I'm going to be like Him one day. Like Father, like Son, like Savior, like Saint. Christ's life becomes my life, my example, and my goal and my pattern. It is abiding in Him that enables me to conquer sin in my life. I can't cover it. Only Christ can cover it. But I can confess it, and I can conquer it. I can move on from sin in my life. I don't do it in my own strength. I do it in His strength. You do it in His strength. You need an advocate. You need help. Amen? We need help, and Christ is the one who is our help. I don't have to to be like Him to be assured, but I want to be like Him, and I am assured that Jesus is my Savior. So let's not cover our sins, but let's confess them, and let's conquer them by God's power. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you. This morning, even now, I cry out, help, God. Can't even draw my next breath without you calling it out. And I pray, God, that my life would reflect your commandments, your love for you, abiding in you, trusting in you, that you're my helper. I pray that for all of us, God, that you would be our life. And God, as, as John's readers, God, I pray that we would read these things and it would encourage us not to sin. But God, when that, those familiar sins pop back up in our life, God, I pray that we would cling to you. We would know that you're our advocate, our helper we would confess our sins and we would move forward to conquer them. God, I thank you for the vine. I thank you for the the people here, the fellowship we have. I pray that you would strengthen that fellowship by your power. God, give us strength even now to understand your sacrifice, to understand your blood that was spilt for us, your body that was broken for us. God, give us strength to know you and to understand for your namesake. In Jesus' name. Amen.